Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone. I hope you're having a great day. I definitely am. I am back in the groove after my first official spring break. Yes. See, I will be honest, when I was a pro athlete, spring break meant zero to me, except that the pool was overrun with kids when I wanted to work out. And now I'm the one overrunning the pool with my kid. Um, I want to take a second before we get into today's show to talk about what this week symbolized for me. And I wonder if you felt it too. Simply put, I think it was a transition. I literally felt like we went from winter to spring, like one week did it. The weather couldn't make up its mind and dumped snow and then it, then the sun came out and then it snowed and then the sun came back out and my energy sort of followed that pattern for a week. I was up and then I was down and then I was up and then I was down. And finally, by the last day of the week on Easter, right in the middle of the day, gravity just tapped me on the shoulder and said, lay down. I want to kidnap you for a moment. (laughs) And so I gave into gravity for the first time in months. I shut my eyes on the couch midday while Wilder played right next to me and uh, drifted off. And when I woke up, it was sunny and I felt the change. And now I'm 100% ready for spring. (laughs) And I hope you are too. So speaking of you know, being open to change, sometimes it's not as obvious and clearly a lot of change takes a lot longer than one week. But this, this sort of journey of ups and downs from getting from one place to the next, I think is super relevant as we introduce today's guest, Betsy Hartley. You know, this is a woman who woke up one day at 400 pounds and a type 2 diabetic and literally said, I'm going to do things differently now. Uh, Since then, she has lost over half of her body weight. She's reversed her type 2 diabetes. She's running ultra marathons. She's living a life of openness in regards to her issues, specifically binge eating disorder, and bringing hope to many others who battle in the dark and feel hopeless and alone out there. Betsy started a business called Novo Veritas, which means honest change. And she helps and nurtures other people along their journeys. And she's the first to admit that her journey is ongoing. You know, unlike spring where you kind of go from winter and then finally you hit spring and you're in spring, you know, you can, you go back and forth on these crazy paths and on her uh, popular blog, All Bets Are Off 392, need to check that out, um, Betsy recently went public about how her binge eating disorder resurfaced. It, you know, it reared its ugly head again after all this time. And you know, the reason she does this is because she knows the power of bringing the tough stuff into the open, both for her and others. In this episode, we do ask you for something. Betsy wants little help. You see, in this fun journey of hers, she is also tackling her 50th year of life. And so she's kind of put out the challenge for all of you to help her figure out what to do next. So when this goes live and we do a Facebook post about it, get over to the Facebook post on Skirt Sports or on my Nicole DeBoom's Facebook page and answer this for Betsy. What audacious epic outdoor adventure should the 50-year-old Betsy Hartley do in 2018? It can be anything, running, swimming, cycling, mountaineering, you name it. All right, but before we get Betsy on the phone, 
I want to share a little bit about my amazing sponsor, Health IQ, who's helping me keep this podcast going. Um, they are a life insurance agency that helps healthy people get better rates. You know, Tim and I never thought about life insurance until we had Wilder and decided it was potentially important to us. And we also figured it was sort of unfair since we put so much effort into our health, but the insurance companies out there probably didn't differentiate between active people like us and those who don't place an emphasis on health. Um, Well, Health IQ differentiates. They help healthy people get better rates. So I went through their process myself, and it was really cool to see that my life choices actually help me get lower rates. So to see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com backslash RTW. And if you talk to an agent, definitely mention this show so they know I sent you. All right, this is a perfect segue into this episode with Betsy Hartley because she knows more than most of us what it looks like to change her life and move towards a life with an emphasis on health. Let's bring her on. You're going to try to behave today, uh-huh. Betsy. <laughs> like I even put my hair up. Just oh my, sure. Just because it's a podcast, you better put your hair up. <laughs> oh. So I'm so glad to see you. Me too. Thank I'm you really for coming. Glad. This is Thank so you. cool. You know, so I send you a note a couple weeks ago like, hey, let's get you on the podcast. Your story's too way too powerful. People need to hear it. And you were like, okay, hold on. And like, you know, hours later, <laughs> I'm coming to Boulder. <laughs> Screw it. So here's the deal. You're not from Boulder. Where are you right now? I'm from Corvallis, Oregon. I mean, that's a pretty cool place, too. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. But Boulder's um, treated me to beautiful bluebird skies and then a little bit of snow. So it's been pretty amazing. Yeah, we do that in March. Yeah, we all like within to screw with 20 you. hours. I know. <laughs> and when you don't drive in it a lot, it can be a little sketchy. <laughs> Just a little. Well, you wake up and you're like, oh my God, everyone's going to be in lock, you know, lockdown today with all the snow, right? But it melts in one hour yeah <laughs> the yeah. streets were fine D- driving home i was like wow another cardio workout for the day <laughs> a little nerve-wracking awesome. so uh so i'm really excited to share your story with everyone and i mean i think there's so many ways that we can take this because there's a lot of messages we need to get out there based on the things that you've gone through but i really think we need to start with the whole body mind journey and i call it a body mind journey it's so much more than that it's like body mind spirit soul heart all of it right Uh but it kind of started with body yep so tell us what happened so um july 2011 i woke up one morning and decided that i needed to make a change and where i was at at that point was um 200 pounds overweight type 2 diabetic Um, I had been injecting insulin in my belly three times a day for 10 years. I was on a handful of medications. And I I, I think I knew things had needed to change for a while, but I thought it was too big to change. Like, just go ahead and die this way. This is just the way you're going to live the rest of your life. And I woke up one morning, and the best I can explain is it's like a switch got flipped. Like, it it was that literal? Literal. I literally walked out in semi pajamas with a hat on my head and walked like just into the kitchen and declared to my dad like I'm doing things different from today on and I did I just started doing things differently from that point on oh my god okay Um, so so you talk about being 200 pounds overweight and realizing you're type 2 diabetic for 10 years maybe or even longer like what got you to that point what got you to the point where your weight went out of control? Like, was it your upbringing? Yeah, I think I was an I was a fat baby. I was one of those babies that I think they were probably, I'm, I'm close to 50 years old, and I think it was one of those points of pride to have like a really robust baby. The problem is I never stopped being robust. Um, I've had times in my life where I was a little bit thinner, but by the time I was in college, I was steadily gaining weight. And by the time I was in my late 20s, early 30s, I was in the mid to high 300 pounds oh and wow. i stayed there for probably a decade between 320 and 400 pounds so but surely like you knew that wasn't healthy i knew it wasn't healthy i didn't know what to do about it didn't care about doing anything about it but why didn't you care like what was going on in your head mm. or your self value or whatever i 
didn't deserve better than what I had. Like it was, that's the life I had been given and I was just gonna do the best I could. I always had on the happy face. Like I was always, I was a happy fat girl. Like I was always happy and trying to make other people happy. And I, I think most people would say I was always very kind. <clears throat> I was fairly miserable on the inside because I knew I probably could be different, living a different life. But at that point, the best analogy I can give you is it's like trying to eat an elephant. Like it's so big and it's so out of control and you're on medicine and your entire wardrobe is, everything is large. You don't know where to begin. You don't know how to begin. People aren't, weren't, when I was doing this, weren't public about how to begin that process from being triple digit overweight to losing weight um, and getting healthy. So I felt very isolated, very alone, and I did not know where to start. And quite honestly, when you've lived that long, that size, you there's a certain level of comfort. Like it's known. I know that I need a seatbelt extender on an airplane. I know not to sit on certain pieces of furniture. I know where to buy, buy large size clothing. So on some level it was a obscene, but uh, there was a comfort level with being that morbidly overweight. Well, I, I think that's true of any kind of coping mechanism, you know, in the end of the day, like, you know, it might not feel be right, but that's what you know. That's what you know. So you're afraid to reach out of it. And this was like 15, 20 years ago when you're in your 30s, maybe, mm -hmm. right, going through this, were you, um, did you experience like, discrimination from people or I don't know I, I'm curious because I feel like today there's more of an awareness of body positivity maybe it's regional too or maybe I'm just a jackass like living in my own world of you know body positivity but um I just wonder like it is it better today than it was and what did you go through back then so um it's See, the hard part to answer that is, yes, it's better today, but I'm also 200 pounds lighter, and I'm moving, Duh. and I'm yeah. active, <laughs> and I have very intentionally surrounded myself with people who are positive and supportive. But yes, I absolutely um, was on the end of discrimination. But the other thing was, um, and, and this has come up with a lot of different women on, on social media, we're pretty open about it, but there was a tremendous amount of fat shaming which just beats you down. And for me, I would get my feelings hurt so I would eat, which I don't know, kind of perpetuates the problem. Oh my gosh. But it's course. like if somebody's mean to me, pizza's never been mean to me. Pizza's never been mean to me a day in its life. So I I would turn to food. But the discrimination piece, um, I think that I'm fairly talented. I'm professionally diligent. I'm I'm good at what I do. Um and I, I think I've been rewarded for that, and I think I've lucked into some really good leaders and bosses. But I've definitely had interactions with people who, because <clears throat> I've been where I've been for as, as long as I have, I've been in rooms with people who wouldn't pay attention to what I was saying, and now that I'm 200 pounds lighter, I can say the exact same thing, and it's suddenly brilliant and taken into consideration. And I think that they don't realize they've done it, but I'm acutely aware of the people who had earmuffs on when I was fat and now like earmuffs are blinders and now those are removed and they hear me because I can sit normally in a chair and I can wear clothes off the rack. Somehow that makes a difference for my intelligence to them. The bigger part actually, and the more devastating part and the part that I'm keen on like embracing the women in my life around is the fat shaming piece where they just don't like you because you're fat and they'll say very directed, very hurtful comments. Like that's the hard stuff to get over. Oh yeah. And it can be people you know, it can be strangers. Yeah, I. some of the more hurtful things were relatives. You know, just, you know, if you, if you weren't heavy, you'd be married by now. You know, we'd have, we'd have more kids in the family if you, you know, if you weren't so heavy, they don't, I think they're just building a family tree in their head. Meanwhile, I'm putting all kinds of value judgments on who I am as a woman in society based on what they're saying. And I, I, I would hope they weren't willfully mean, but I, it's a very real, it's a still, I think it's still a very real issue. But now I think on some level, there's women who have gotten stronger and have a voice and speak out. And I think there's women and men that speak out on behalf of others. I didn't see that five or six years ago, and I see yeah. a lot more of it now. 
Do you speak out on behalf of others? I really do. I try to be careful on social media because you can't always construct context or tone or you don't know really what may have gone into the situation that led to comments. If it's just overt and mean, I'll say something. But I work on a college campus. I would purposely hang out in and around the gym. And I'm, I'm really careful to make sure that people are being as nice and kind as they can. And if they aren't, I'll try to very gently correct them. Hey, another way to say this would be such and such, or do you realize how your words came across? Um, And I try to engage them in a conversation instead of attacking or defending. Um, Very rarely I'll just attack back. (laughs) Because I've got a little bit of sass in me. But what I've learned is if I can engage people in a conversation, I can usually get everybody further along. Oh, absolutely. I think it's such a good approach, but people get really scared when they have to let down their insecurities, which led them to making those comments in the first place. Yeah. Right? Oh, it, yeah. So especially on like a college campus. Oh, absolutely. Let's, um, can we go back to talk a little bit about like the slow path towards like obesity? Was it all eating or was there a lack of exercise or was it a genetic issue or, you know, when, how did this all come together? Because I think people listening can be feeling the same way as you you did and not they're not sure how to break it down themselves right yeah it's the eating the elephant thing yeah (laughs) they um and just in case animal rights people want to get uppity about it i'm not actually talking about a literal elephant okay folks just talking about that feeling of like being in the bottom of a pit and not quite understanding how you got there yeah or what you're going to do but i think i was overweight i've definitely used Um, food as a coping mechanism, I reached a tipping point where being active was uncomfortable. So then it became inactivity Mm -hmm. um, combined with really poor food habits. Genetics is an interesting question. Um, Yes, I definitely have some genetics that would predispose me to, um, let's just say, making sure that I have ample body coverage. Like, you know, I have bigger (laughs) genetics than than everybody. but like, as far as my body's concerned, at an early age, I was told I was polycystic. I had polycystic ovaries, um, which actually messes with your hormone profile. And they actually have links now between PCOS and occurrences of type two diabetes. And in my mind, I've done enough reading, and somebody may have a better answer for me. But it's kind of like the chicken versus the egg. It's kind of like you can exacerbate one with the other, but there's a lot of time there's a link between those two because. Insulin is a hormone, and polycystic ovary syndrome taps into the hormonal issues. So I think I had a whole bunch of stuff working against me, and I just let it work against me instead of pushing back or trying to find the thread that would begin to, to save me. And so um, I think it was a bunch of every, I think it was a whole bunch of stuff. And then when you got there, it, it, the comfort kicked in, like you said, and you're, you're, I don't know, your definition of yourself, your identity just became kind of wrapped around where you were, right? Yeah. And it's kind of like, be kind and be happy because nobody really wants to be around a fat person. And so I definitely compensated with personality. I was, I figured if nobody saw me eat, they would just figure I had some horrible health condition and wouldn't really understand that I was actually doing this. For me, I was, I was doing this to myself. Like I did it to myself. There absolutely are people that I now have the privilege of working with who are medically obese because of something malfunctioning in their body or or something has happened. Uh, I have um, struggled with binge eating disorder. I abuse food because I don't know how to cope with certain emotions. I was inactive. I don't think I was ever like profoundly lazy. I think it just became so hard just to be a 400 pound woman moving that anything extra went to the wayside. So um, yeah, it was a slow rolling stone that led to all of that. Uh-huh. So this is a really interesting thing. Um, one of my past guests said that in your 40s, that's often the decade when you wake up one day and you realize that the old coping mechanisms are no longer effective. Mm-hmm. And so you have to find a new way to move yourself through this world. 
So how old were you on in July of 2011 when you walked into the kitchen that day and you you pronounced today is the day of a whole new you? Yeah, I was 43. Yeah, there it is. And um, started <laughs> running by the time I was like 44. And, wow. Um, I am. I can't tell you. I turned 50 this year, and I am the only person I know that's truly excited about getting into a new decade. Like the 40s started it, but I want to see what I can do with my 50s. Oh my gosh. Because I think they're going to be amazing and I can't wait. Like I'm, I'm pretty excited to be healthy going into it and try to make the most of it. And so, like, but I yeah, just, 40s were seminal and I have girlfriends that are making big life changes and they're all in their 40s too. So yeah, I, I buy that theory. You know, I think I don't, I wish we could... I like want to help people by giving them the step-by-step process that happened to you when that switch flicked. Maybe that's unrealistic, but maybe if you could talk us through like the small steps you made in those first days and months and then year and years to help people, um, maybe somebody can take something away from this. I, I'm sitting here laughing. Cause I'm getting goosebumps. I know, <laughs> I'm excited. Well, I'm sitting here laughing because like, I think the thing you have to know is there is no magic bullet and it is not linear. And as long as you, if even if you are like a type A personality, if you can hang on to the idea that it is not going to be linear, it's going to look like a sci-fi roller coaster ride and um, that there is no magic bullet. You're going to get out what you put in and you're going to lose what you don't put in. Like it, and um, I mean that more philosophically than actual food, although I think that translates, but um, it was one step at a time, one day at a time, trying to just do the next right thing. And that what worked for everybody, some of it didn't work for me, still doesn't work for me. But what I'm finding is as I travel along, sometimes something that didn't work early on, I can like pick back up, look at it, and now it works. Or now it's interesting. For me, a perfect example of that is swimming. When I first started, there was complete terror at having to be in a bathing suit anywhere for any reason. And then I realized like I'm the only fat person on the planet that has no flotation ability. I get in a pool and I sink straight to the bottom. And I I understand like physically, like physics wise, like that should not happen, but I sink like a rock and I'm claustrophobic. So having my face in the water is like, swimming was just a bad thing all the way around. Well, I've reached a point now where like I have new goals and desires and I had an, an, an older runner that I've spent quite a bit of time with and I said, well, I can't swim. And her challenge back to me was can't or won't because swimming is simply a skill. And I was so pissed for about a week. And I thought, you know, who the, who is, she? I'm not listening to her. And then about a week later, I thought, you know what? She's got a point. Swimming's a skill and skills can be learned. Get your butt back in the pool, figure this out. The first day was like, everybody's gonna stare at me in a bathing suit and I think I'm just gonna die before I even get in the pool. And I go out on the pool deck, not a single person cares that I'm there, except the lifeguard who's just making sure I don't drown. So I get back in the pool and I'm trying to teach myself to swim and I'm falling in love with swimming. And five years ago, I hated it. I didn't want to be in a bathing suit in front of people. I didn't, you know, I hadn't surgically removed skin yet. So I looked either pregnant or like I literally had a fat apron of skin that hung down to my thighs. So getting in the pool would be compression pants with something over the compression pants. And now um, I've surgically removed skin, but type throw on a bathing suit and get in the pool. And she's right. It's a skill. I need to go back and apologize to her at some point. (laughs) Actually, we should do it right now. Sorry. (laughs) Um, But she's right. It's a skill. And it, it, didn't serve me early in the journey, but it serves me now because it's not linear and I've stayed open to the fact that there is no magic bullet and I just pick things up and see if they work and put them back down and try not to judge it and and keep going and keep trying to do the next right thing for yourself. Oh, I love that philosophy. Um, (sighs) And I also love the can't or won't. Yeah. That's a big, that's a big mental switch too. Mm -hmm. Okay, but I am gonna keep bringing you back to the early days because how do you just start? What was the first right thing? Um, for me, it was, I really, at 400 pounds, I had to start with diet. Um, I okay. couldn't even tie shoes, so I was in flip-flops. So the idea of like 
going out and walking a mile in flip-flops when you're 400 pounds pretty um, dumb unless it's a last option so I really had to start with diet and I started with just cutting my first step was actually I just cut out all fast food so unless I was actually making or packaging my own food and then the next step was I couldn't buy anything at a gas station (laughs) and I, I had to create some sets of rules not to be, um, yes, I, I struggle with binge eating disorder and food rules are a cumbersome topic that I'm still unpacking. Uh-huh. But early on, it was really directed at can I change my behavior? Can I get away from eating packaged right. food? Can I get away from eating fast food? And I started dropping weight. And then it was like tweaks in the home. Let's get sugar out of your diet. Let's try introducing additional vegetables. And by the way, what I've just explained to you with those four steps was probably a year long process of like getting fast food out. I literally decided no more fast food. And a week into the process, I literally found myself out of habit in the drive through at McDonald's. Out of habit? Just out of habit. So I habit. was all of a sudden mm-hmm. in a drive through at McDonald's and thought, what the hell am I doing here? You don't want this. What? It? So I get to the speaker and they're like, can we help you? I'm like, no, I took a wrong turn. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't. drove on right th- yeah because I had you sworn to didn't. myself I wasn't gonna do it but so I got you- there by habit and it would have been so easy out of just embarrassment yeah. to buy something I mean habits are basically what make our days go by right so, so you're restructuring all of those it, and that's huge and yet you're maintaining your job and your family life and your friends and all the other things. So this is a big, huge change that you're making on the side. Did you tell anyone other than your dad? So I didn't even really completely tell my dad. I just said, you know, you're gonna see some different stuff in the house. My my mom had died and my dad was widowed and we have a farm. So I was living on the farm to help him. Okay. Um, so he was kind of like, hey, as long as there's food in the house, who cares? Um, supportive but kind of oblivious but totally supportive Um, I had three friends that I reached out to and I swore them into secrecy because I am a chronic diet failure I had dropped out of Weight Watchers 12 times I'd I'd lost and gained the best I can figure is you know probably 2,000 pounds in my life between Metafast and Nutrisystems and trying to lose weight to be eligible for gastric bypass which I did not do Um, Weight Watchers over a dozen times and so I didn't tell anybody because I thought well here we go again I'm gonna announce that I'm making a change and then I'm gonna gain all the weight back so I'm just not gonna tell anybody but something was different this time because I really began to address the behaviors not just the food or the calorie counting but the actual behaviors like not eating fast food and not buying stuff in a gas station and choosing what I put in my grocery cart to take into my home and teaching myself I am a crappy cook but teaching myself how to assemble better meals Um, so it was all about changing behaviors and changing those habits instead of just starving yourself or completely restricting calories again there's no magic bullet yeah you know I mean did you use like did you have sticky notes in the car and things that were reminding you did you have to have like visual reminders I bought myself a really cute water bottle and a really cute lunch bag and I made sure that my lunch bag had all my snacks and food for the day for work or anytime I got in the Mm car one of the other rules I eventually established was I couldn't eat in the car because I'd eat mindlessly and just not even know what I was eating oh yeah but I got to where like even now if you went out to my Got, grabbed my purse and looked in it. I've I've got anywhere from three to four hundred calories of snacks in my purse, so that I'm not forced into making a poor food decision. I'm providing for myself. This is nobody's job but mine. And you know what? This is a new habit. Oh yeah, and is this amazing? So many years in, I still have to remind myself. Like I landed, the airplane landed. I got in the rental car, and the first thing I did was go to a grocery store and buy some like fruits and nuts and stuff, so that. I wasn't tempted to say, well, I don't have anything. I'll just eat what I used to eat. And so I have to stay vigilant to those behaviors, but um, they serve me very well. It's, It's interesting. I mean, I, you know, I grew up eating all kinds of stuff and fast food sometimes and whatever, but I don't think we've had fast food for 20 years. I mean, the fastest food we get is that fast casual food, noodles and company and, you know, Lark Burger and that kind of stuff, right? So it's, 
it's foreign to me to think that an, a drive through would be an option. That's not a habit of mine. But for you, were you like hitting that kind of behavior every day? I was hitting it every day, but the important part, Nicole, is I was hiding it every oh, day. Oh, man. So I was really good at being able to eat like six meals a day, but visibly only th- three anybody could see. And I was really good at, at hiding what I was doing. The piece that you are going to want to ask me that I don't have an answer for is like, when did that hiding behavior begin? And I don't have the answer for that. Like that's part of the, I'm in therapy for helping with binge eating and we're beginning to really uncover mm. what were some of those precipitating events that taught you that you couldn't cope, but food could help you cope. And yeah. I'm beginning to untangle all of that. And the mystery is like, when did this really start? Like, when did it become okay to hide what you were eating? And I'm wicked good at it. But I can also spot it in others from half a mile away. Oh, boy. I'm, yeah. So it's... <laughs> so let's, let's talk about binge eating because this is, this is a serious thing. There's a lot of different ways that women connect with food, right? What is binge eating? So of all the eating disorders possible, binge eating is the most prevalent in the United States. It's eating a large amount of food within a set, within a shortened period of time. So it's not eating a Thanksgiving meal and being so full you have to undo the top button of your pants. It's chronically eating very large amounts of food and it's usually typified by the fact that it's been triggered by some kind of an emotional response or some kind of an emotional upheaval. Um, or something that you're trying to to manage with food. So my binge, I would I I know I had binge eating episodes a long time ago. I started losing weight, and I very naively misunderstood binge eating. I thought it was like part of why I was fat. I didn't understand that it is a mental health issue, and that it didn't go away. I had just beaten it into submission for a little while. So I had a reoccurrence of binge eating in the fall, and it was very of last year. Yeah, it was hugely alarming because I thought I had cured myself, and you can't. Um, those are the wrong words to use with so binge eating. With um, your form of binge eating, it wasn't bulimia. You weren't bringing it back up. Oh heavens, no! You I don't just, like to throw up. You were shoving <laughs> it all down. Yeah. There. So my binge in the fall was. Over four, um, I, I went to Costco and I bought four of their huge bags of trail mix. And over four days, I ate an entire bag of trail mix every day. Oh. So it was over 50,000 calories, 3,200 carbs. And it was, I think there's 60 servings per bag. And I was eating a bag a day, plus eating regular meals so that nobody would catch on to the fact that I was um, hiding and eating all of this food. And so. Um, well, and it's really interesting because you, it's like this planned thing. I'm going to get these four bags and I'm going to do this for four days. I mean, in your mind, were you like, I'll just keep doing it? Or was this just like, what, what made you want to do it? I'm yeah. so sorry to put you through no, this. No, like, no, no, no. I think this can help people. Yeah, no. Um, it was completely planned. Um, I'm, I'm going to kind of start from the back and work my way to the, to the front of the story. Um, it was completely planned, and from the minute I took the first bite of trail mix, it was, like, devastating. Like, I knew it was wrong, but it was four days before I could get the train stopped. And I finally called a friend and said, I think I may even have to go into inpatient care. Like, I can't stop this. Like, I I don't know what to do. And his comment was... Um, well, you need to get the food out of the house. And I laughed and I was like, you don't understand. Like, I've eaten it all. It's <laughs> it's out of the house. It's totally out of the house. The problem is I'm going to go and buy more or I'm going to do this again. So I have little tricks to interrupt it, like making sure that my wallet is locked in the trunk of the car because it'll interrupt my thinking and I'll have to actually stop and think before I get my wallet out of the car. It's not this like... So I'm, I'm like pretty mentally fragile asking for help to undo, you know, stop this, this process. And then you spend about, I spent about five or six weeks just very on edge around food, having to think through every single thought and lots of tears and lots of frustrations and lots of impulses that you can't give into. And you're having to say, I see you and you're not winning this time, hundreds of times. <laughs> And so um, I think that what precipitated it was like, I'm just, we're, we're, I, 
I have a small business. I have a job I love. I have nephews that I adore. I am doing all this running. And I had just DNF'd out of a 100-miler. I had made it to mile 76 and had to pull out. And um, it was the second 100-miler of the year that I'd had to DNF out of. And I was just feeling like I was kind of a crappy runner and probably a crappy human. And I'd let other things slide while I was focused on these goals that I couldn't get to. And I just was beating the crap out of myself and then decided that trail mix would be a really good solution to just finish off the pummeling. Um, And so pretty much any emotion I can mistake as needing to be comforted with food. And so um, part of the process for me has been figuring out how to literally pause and stop and say, what besides food could fix this? Or is this, are you truly hungry? And um, I still have to think through some of those mechanically <laughs> every day. That's why I said this is not linear and it's no. there's no magic bullet, you know? There isn't. And, you know, maybe that's why we have to be a little older and more mature to be able to stop ourselves a lot of the time. Maybe that's why the 40s is the decade when you can actually find new ways to cope. Yeah. New crutches that are healthy. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I can totally relate to this because, um, you know, I always used alcohol as a way to release pressure or when things were not going great in my life or if my marriage was kind of like we weren't super connected I would just be acting out through alcohol so I had to put an end to that too and you know the hard thing about what you're going through is you do need to continue to eat in your life and like alcohol you can stop you don't ever have to have alcohol again so in a sense that's like easier (laughs) than how I'm looking at it right now trail mix isn't the devil like you just said you got fruit and nuts at the grocery store you basically trail mix is something you don't want to not have to include in your life right forever you know so this is a tough tough road because you basically have to shift your habits and turn a relationship that was negative into a positive one you can't just get rid of that relationship no but that's also the beauty of it is that you get to do that work you do you're right and so but you um, have to look at it that way and i did for a long time yeah. it was like how do you eat an elephant well okay so have you heard the joke about like how do you eat an elephant no you eat an elephant one bite at a time it's how anybody would eat the elephant we're all the same we'd all have to eat it one bite at a time so it's the elephant and you can either choose to let it rampage and run your life or you can choose to begin to eat it one bite at a time and try to make something different out of it so for me the the binge eating was something i wanted to ignore and deny and it was ruling everything and now i'm like no you wily little bastard i've got you right in front of me (laughs) and we're sorry for cussing and we're gonna figure this out and we're gonna figure out how to have a relationship i think it was either the mayo clinic or harvard one of the sites was had done a study on how many food decisions an individual has to make in a day and you have to make over 200 food decisions a day 200 decisions where I am at a crossroads with binge eating disorder and making a decision about food. So um, I have a business partner who is a recovering alcoholic. He and I have had tons of conversations about how many similarities there are. It's just that sometimes mine are more in the micro where his mantra might be one day at a time. My mantra is one bite at a time. Yeah. But But it is the same thing. It is absolutely the same what are you choosing what how are you choosing to make something different and better for yourself it's just sometimes i'm making it like 200 times a day oh it's like <laughs> it's exhausting it's exhausting <laughs> yeah um but i want to talk about the scale i oh boy so here's here's a here's just a little story so um we have this real women move challenge group on facebook uh in january we did some new year's resolutions or goal setting for the year right and a lot of women said i want to lose and then they had like x number of pounds or i want to be down to an acceptable weight Mm -hmm. or they there was a lot of emotional tie i could see to the scale i don't have that Maybe I did in college when we were getting weigh-ins, right? We can talk about the past and all the things that, you know, would trigger this sort of insecurity that we as women would have. But like, what's your thought on the scale? Do you think it's important for people to know how much they weigh? Um, I would say, uh, well, no. (laughs) Simple answer, no. 
Um, I think I've spent a lot of time being driven by chasing a number and being told what my BMI was and being told what the ideal female should look like. And the truth of the matter is I'm healthier now than I've ever been in my entire life. And the number on the scale may or may not reflect that. But my my attitude, the activity in my life, the people I'm surrounded with all make that number a moot point. Um, I mean, I've had to have interventions with like loading my scale up and taking it to my sister's house because I would become obsessed with trying to hit that number on the scale. Um, but the truth of the matter is it, it may actually tip the scale, pardon the ton- pun, as to whether I have a good or a bad day. But the bottom line is I'm being active and I'm making the best food choices I can. And BMI is really just a illogical insurance chart to begin with. So um, I'm healthy, I'm active. All the numbers that my doctor wants to watch to make sure that I'm as healthy as possible are all right where they need to be. So um, I've moved away in the last two years of even caring what the scale is. And when I'm working with women, I purposely ignore whatever their, purposely and gently ignore whatever their weight loss numbers are. And we focus on the non-scale victories. Do you want to be able to get up off the floor easier? Do you want to be able to walk farther? Do you want to be able to do a 10K? Do you want to be able to buy clothes out of a, a normal? Because it's not the number on the scale that's going to get them to any of those. It just isn't. And so we work really hard. I work really hard when I'm working with women to take the focus away from the scale and focus on ability or abilities and goals that have nothing to do with the scale. Like I, I've lost 220 pounds and I still don't fit in some normal ranged clothes because they'll call an extra large, like a size 12. And I'm a 14 or I'm a 16 and I'm, you know, 180 pounds and I'm healthy. I probably, according to BMI, need to be about 30 pounds lighter. And I don't want to, I don't want to be, I'm fine where I'm at. Um, and if I'm fine where I'm at, then it, fine where I'm at, then everybody else needs to be okay with where I'm at. Well, because what would that really do for you to be 30 it pounds It would make less? me hungry and angry. And, and, <laughs> and what it would take, think about it like uh, as a pro athlete, I used to train 30 hours a week. Well, for years I trained 10 hours a week and I was only 10% slower. That's fine. 10 yeah. hours a week compared to 30. Like the difference that it takes to reach that last 10% takes so much out of you. And I, I can't see, maybe I'm being naive, but I can't see what it's going to get me different than like, I wake up in the morning and right now I wake up and I think I get to go to the pool and I'm going to pack a lunch and I'm glad certain fruits or vegetables are in season. And I have a very healthy mindset about who I am and where I'm going and what I want to do. There's parts of the day where I, that may slip and I, I have to remind myself, no, you're worth it. Like keep fighting this. But when I see women struggling with the scale, I'm usually just very sad because I'm not sure what else they're weighing in. And if they're weighing in again, sorry to use puns, but I'm not sure what else they're valuing into that, that number. And if they're just aiming for a number on the scale, it's not necessarily sustainable. Like they may hit it. And then if that's all that's got them there, uh, they may not be able to, to keep it there. It's true. And then once you get there, you're like, well, maybe I could go a little further. I mean, you can just be so unhealthy. Or you get there and you're like, wow, I'm not happy. Nothing changed. Right. It's like... Because <sighs> you're focused on a number on a scale. I know. Scale is a machine that we all buy cheap and throw down on the bathroom floor. And then we let it guide our life. Like, that's kind of dumb wisdom, really. Well, think about it. You mentioned doing 100 milers. First of all, we do have to talk about how you got, like, went from, what, seven years ago, like, not walking to doing 100 milers. But, um, you know, you didn't finish a couple. Would finishing them have changed who you thought you were, how you feel about yourself? Like, Tim won Hawaii twice. He wasn't happy the end of the day you know I won an Ironman too and I it didn't change the way I felt about myself right winning a race versus dropping out of a race versus whatever it's when you let yourself I guess give in to your feelings of worth or value mm-hmm. right through yeah. having maybe not com- completed something and then you're like okay well I must not be a hundred percent of a person because I didn't complete a hundred percent of a race so I, I, for me, there was an, an initial response of disappointment because you do all this training and there's, 
the 100 mile, when you go to actually run the race, it's like 1% of everything you've had to do to get there. So it's, you have to want it bad enough to be temporarily disappointed or you have no business attempting those types of things anyway. That's true. Like you have to be able to be willing to put in the time and get the advice and run with a headlamp and moldy shoes for six months of the year. Like you just have to be able to, that has to be desirable on some level. So some of the disappointment I think comes with wanting something so bad that you don't get it. Where I think I'm maturing as a woman and as a human and as an athlete is that those are no longer painful. They're clarifying and instructional. Failure is like, so what could I do differently? Or how important is that? And what I've discovered is like, I love the training. I hate racing. I get so nervous within the first three miles. I'm like, really, why did I do this? I wish I was just going on a long run. And so well, but they've been the super clarifying. Why, why the nerves? Because you're not gonna win prize money. No. So that's off, off the table. Um, is it about beating people? No, it's about everybody running past me and all of a sudden I'm mm -hmm. finding myself at the back of the pack. And when I'm training by myself, I am an Olympic sprinter <laughs> and you show up at the 100 mile start line and everybody takes off and you're on a 40 mile out and back and the lead runners are coming at you and you're like five miles in and they've been clocking these, you know, amazing times and you're thinking, wow, I really, I, you know, you, you part of ultra running is managing your brain and your brain loves to tell you that you're not capable and you need to quit because it really kind of wants to stop the whole process and so part of ultra training that is so appealing to me is retraining your brain that anything's possible and it needs to just shut up and sit down for a little bit and let you do something impossible so <clears throat> that's why i love the ultra running but there's those first bit of a shakeout before you really settle in where you're like, wow, am I going to be dead last? Am I going to make the cutoffs? Like, I know pain is coming. Is it already showing up? Like we're mile three. It shouldn't be showing up yet. <laughs> and so um, there, there's you're sorting through the inferiority. You're sorting through the fear of like, I trained hard. Can I actually do this? And everybody else is doing better than me. And then eventually you settle into a pattern where you realize, no, this is my race. I'm going to run my race. But those beginning nerves are just torturous for me until I can settle into, no, I trained for this and I have as much right as anybody to be out here and I'm giving it 100% and we'll see what 100% gets me. Oh, I so, love that. But not, I mean, it's taken me a while to get to that. And I, I have really good crew and, you know, you'll run into an aid station and they they'll have verbal cues to kind of remind you like this is your race run your race don't right. worry about what everybody else is doing and so yeah i don't know they're incredible beasts well let's talk about your first mile because you shared your story in an article that i just wrote about yeah. women finding running in different decades of their lives for different reasons and um i think a lot of people when they start they have this image of like wanting to look like the people they see running who always look like they're having a runner's high and they're very happy and they're very physically fit and they're like i want some of that but then they get out there and their first experience is not always awesome and the point we need to help <laughs> people with is that you if you stop after that very first experience you'll never try anything in your life because usually the first time you try just about anything it's pretty awful so um mm. maybe share how you got started yeah and that article by the way it's an honor to be in there reading about how everybody got started on their journeys is um a reminder that it, it has to be personal like you can't be doing it because somebody else thinks it's a good idea and that was a good um a good reminder my first mile was i was probably 295 pounds and i had decided now first mile um i had decided that walking i'd been walking and walking and i walked a marathon and i had decided that i could get done sooner and be a little less bored if i could put just a little bit of running into the routine and i i literally began by running across driveways and running between telephone poles and just trying to see what could happen. These were on the back roads in the farm country. I was wearing 5X men's clothing from Walmart. I was wearing like slip-on sketcher shoes because they were the only things that would fit my feet. 
Um, and I remember I just took off from the driveway at the farm and I ran to the end of the farm road and it was a mile and I had this, you know, little watch that told me I'd run a mile and I bawled like a baby at the stop sign because I had, I might have run a, a mile in junior high or high school, but most of my recollections of my early activity were of figuring out how to dodge it and get out of it and not have to do it. And so I consider that to be my first mile and it was, I was so proud of myself and I remembered thinking, that hurt, that sucked, what am I gonna do next? And I remembered trying to run back and I couldn't run the full mile back. So then it became, let's see if we can do two miles. And I just began stringing the miles together and realized, you know, wow, that so first mile was a big catalyst. It's huge. It and, is so huge. Um, it's and funny because you like started for efficiency. You're like, I got to get this done faster. Yeah, if people are waiting for me at the finish line, <laughs> like I just got to move a little faster. And if I run when nobody's looking, I'll get there quicker. Well, and look at your inner competitiveness, like starts coming out. Yeah. You said you string one thing to the next, right? So I run a mile. Now I'm going to try to run back. Yeah. You know, I mean, then what, then what? And this is what we see happen to people when they find something that really connects with them. Yeah. So running was the thing that connected mm-hmm. your head and your heart and your body. Well, and it kind of, there's two two pieces for it for me that were like, I, I'm never good at articulating exactly how they played into it. But one was the idea of hope, like Hope is so powerful. Like at any point in time, if I have the ability to help someone find hope, I will move heaven and earth to try to make that happen. And it was this idea of, well, there is hope. Like if I can run a mile, even if all I can do is run a mile, maybe I can run the mile faster. And I began to have hope that like I was going to really be able to turn this situation around and get off of insulin and lose all the weight that I needed to lose to be healthy. And so it was kind of this uprising of hope. Uh, Meanwhile, I can't breathe because I'm gasping and dying, you know, but there was that feeling of hope. But there was also that feeling of, so you didn't think you were possible of this, possible, you didn't, you thought this was impossible. You've now done it. What other things have you thought were impossible that you can now go do? Why don't you get off your butt and go find out? Like, get started you have told yourself these incredible stories about how you are incapable and things are impossible and you can't do things and they're freaking stories they are stories and you don't have to believe them any longer you can choose a new narrative and find a new direction and i just remembered thinking i told myself the wrong story the story is i can run and it might look a little painful and it might be slow and i'm never going to be in the olympics but i can run and it's and it's mine and nobody can take that away from me. This isn't this isn't somebody else's idea. Nobody else's legs are running it. Like th- this is me and mine. And I just remembered thinking, I I have hope and I now know that I have completely limited myself by the bullshit stories I've been feeding myself. So let's begin to look at things a little differently. And it was it was literally if you had taken a picture of me, it was like the sun and the clouds were coming out of my head. It was just this moment of like, now what am I now what's possible? Oh my and so, God. So you mentioned the word impossible. We we use that word a lot. Yeah. Too much. We love to use it usually as an excuse or a self waiver. Like, oh here's why I can't do it. You know, you um I don't know when you started the Real Women Move campaign, but that's how I found you, was I was looking for sources of positivity for women who are triple digit overweight, afraid to go into the gym, don't know what a serving size looks like, they've been told they're diabetic, and for them it's a death sentence because they don't know how, what the self-care around diabetes is gonna look like. And I was looking for a social media way to connect them because they're not gonna show up to a group they're, they're not going to show up to actually interact with other humans face to face. So I was literally seeking out something on social media that would make what they were doing and who they were okay and be a positive forum. So I actually found you through Real Women Move because it was just this really positive social media forum where the women I'm working with who are fragile and afraid and on a precipice of trying to decide whether to do something or not could feel safe. And so, um, yeah, that that was really critical. Uh, you use the word safe. That's the key. I mean, yeah. and we started this movement maybe about six years ago. Okay. 
five years ago? I found it about three years ago. And it's um, it, it's been empowering. We started using the hashtag maybe oh, yeah. about three years ago. That's And that mm-hmm. was how I found it was I thought, I've got these women who are afraid to go into the gym because they've been fat shamed and they've had... They've run on rural roads and had people throw things at them out of pickup trucks. And and they've had people, they have significant others in their life who are not supportive. Like they needed a support network to know that they were okay and that they... There is no shame. Like there's, there can be healthy at every single size for yeah. the most part. Um, and so I sought that out as a resource to say, hey, here's a safe place for you to connect. They're not going to judge and they'll celebrate your triumphs and you don't have to actually show up and be face to face with someone. Um, because quite honestly, I am working self-selected. Um, Spencer and I have self-selected to work with populations that don't necessarily you know, losing 30 pounds is one thing. Losing 200, there's a whole different dynamic. Like when you can't tie shoes and they don't make sports bras in your size and and you've been treated poorly. There is there is a whole different layer of dynamics to get people to understand that healthy is in their best interest and what does that look like. Right. And so, um, yeah, the Real Women Move campaign was super exciting to find because they're, you're more likely to find fat shaming and here's how a perfect woman should look than you were to find, hey, we love you who as you are, what are you doing today? Man, this is the coolest plug we could ever do for skirt sports. <laughs> and I didn't even... <laughs> it's legit. I, it, but, it's, but it's been instrumental for women that are hidden in the shadows until they can figure out that they're not going to hide in the shadows anymore. And it's that population that's dealing with shame and vulnerability. And, you know, it, it, it it's... I, they're kind of the forgotten, but they're my people because that's where I was. I like know. Those are the women that my heart is with are the women that are like, how the hell do you lose 180 pounds? Like, I, it can't be done. And I'm like, uh, wait just a minute. Actually, it can. And let's talk about how to break down the elephant. We're going to eat the elephant. Let's talk about that. And, and let's not do it in a way where it's not sustainable, which no. is what you lived for, you know, decades of your life right. before. Uh, gaining and losing 2,000 pounds. I mean, geez, that's not sustainable either. You needed to change for good. Yep. And you did. Yeah. You know, we're we're rocking this. I mean, we are, we're going way long. Everybody said I should Sorry. change the whole format to just being around the average 10K time because we always <laughs> go too long, which I love. Um, 10K for back of the Packers. I would, vote, I would vote for that. I yes. mean, this is like a really awesome kind of walk, run 5K right now. We're at 52 minutes, so it's totally fine. Totally. Um, look <laughs> at you. Let's Before we uh, start wrapping it up, I do want to hit on type 2 diabetes. Because I think that's pretty prevalent, and I think people need to understand it better and how you can live with it and how you can kind of kick it. Yep. So, um, and I didn't look up the latest um, diabetes numbers, but the prevalence of type 2 diabetes is epidemic. Um, The CDC has declared it epidemic in the United States. Pre-diabetes means that some of your factors are alarming alerting or on the high end um, type 2 diabetes is also called insulin resistance it basically just means that um, your body produces a whole lot of insulin Um, your pancreas still works and it produces insulin but your body can't necessarily use that type of fuel the best way to the best analogy is if you put diesel into a gas tank Um, it's still a fuel it's just that the gas tank car doesn't know how to use diesel fuel and so um, you wind up with a bunch of um, crap in your blood that eventually begins to hurt systems and so what I wish is that when I was diagnosed as pre-diabetic I literally literally was told take this pill you don't have to change anything else you're just you know it's just pre-diabetes but we just want you to take this pill and what somebody should have said was it's going to kill you it's not It is not an if, it is a when. Type 2 diabetes will get you, and you have the chance to avert it right now. What what would you like to do to make it different? Um, I wasn't given strong enough. I ignored, chose to ignore, or was not given. I'm I'm debating with myself what really happened there, Um, the warnings with prediabetes. And then the next thing I knew, I had a wound on my foot that would not heal. And I all of a sudden was in with a wound care specialist in my 30s, and they're talking about cutting part of my foot off because I have a bone infection because I have rampant diabetes. 
And I literally went home with a bag of insulin and a bunch of needles and I was suddenly taking insulin. But type two diabetes can be caused by a pancreatic insult. It can be caused, you know, you can have greater incidence of it because of genetics. The sad part and the part that people get really offended about is that by and large, it's a lifestyle disease. We eat too much, we eat too much of the wrong stuff and we're not moving enough. And our bodies aren't built for that. And eventually they start to break down because we're not built for that. So I do get pushback from people who are insulted when I call it a lifestyle disease. But the truth of the matter is the the science bears me out that it is a lifestyle disease. So if I'm speaking just about myself, I did type two diabetes to myself. I had a processed heavy sugar, um, heavy, heavy, heavy packaged food diet out of convenience, out of comfort, because I have all these other factors. If you strip it all down, um, I did it to myself. So the part about type two that can be very disturbing is some of the medicines that you go on to actually control your blood glucose cause weight gain. So all of a sudden you're taking a drug that's helping you manage the disease, but it's making you heavier. So there's, you know, I, when I went on insulin, they were like, yeah, good luck. It's a hormone. You're either growing up or you're growing out and you're in your forties. So you're kind of d- done growing up and, um, like losing weight on insulin. My doctor had to look at specific protocols for getting me off of the medicine because nobody in her geriatric endocrinology program had worked their way off of medicines. And so the thing is, is it can be done. It's just, it's hard work, but it can be done. Where my passion lies is, can I catch people at the pre-diabetes stage and get them to take it seriously and then begin to make some diet modifications so that we're not dealing with medical modifications as well. But if I could get people at the pre-diabetes stage to understand that it's in their control and that with some changes, they could kind of turn things around Um, that's, I will spend the rest of my life trying to help the women in the shadows and trying to help people with pre-diabetes understand that it's not a death sentence. It's just a really acute warning. And what are you going to do with it? Well, and I think if you just speak to them the way you said you wished you were spoken to, that's your number one first, you know, method to use. But Yeah. yeah, amazing. So, uh, wow, we learned a lot today and that was actually, I love the, you know, I love the way you put it with uh, type two and I love the way you framed your whole journey and the whole point is it's still a journey oh right yeah very much I mean you you had a couple of big ultra runs last year that didn't go your way you had some binge eating slippage you're getting your running mojo back what's on the docket for 2018 so um I well learning to swim. That yeah. one's like only in the last couple of weeks. But well, like, if you come, I want to swim. Come to our uh, skirt sports retreat yeah. for uh, this. Sorry, everybody listening. We do have a private retreat for ambassadors. But I am going to put on a swim clinic. Oh, I'm I decided that. I'm doing it. It's Monday, June fourth. Okay. Okay. I don't know when or where, but I got to put on a swim clinic because you're not the only one who's asked for help with swimming. I, swimming. I I, I want to swim. I want to do something epic on my 26th. I got into a lottery for a 100 miler where I would have started running when I was 49 and I would have finished when I was 50 and I didn't get in the lottery. Oh. And so now I'm going to have to create my own adventure. They need to get you in. What I race know. was it? It was Cascade Crest 100 and I'm Man. like 200 on the waiting list, so it's not going to happen. Oh. But um You know, this year is really about stabilizing from last year, like getting healthy and, you know, regathering my tribe and really kind of refocusing on the things that um, my dad would use the analogy of like dance with the one who brung you. Like I need to get back to some of the basics where I was happy and healthy and things were I need to make sure I'm taking care of myself and then I'll start adding races and the stuff that's fun and and things to start aiming for. But I do turn 50 in August and I want to do, I don't know, circumnavigate Mount Hood or do something something really fun. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm noodling that and I keep asking people, what do you think I should do? Like, let's do something really fun. That's the question. What should Betsy do this year that's in in August? Some kind of adventure-y running ultra type thing. 
audacious and exciting. All right, guys, this is it. That's We're going to challenge. This is the challenge. <laughs> All right, as we wrap it here, I'm going to ask you the final question that I ask everybody who comes on our show. And that is that if you could give our listeners one final piece of advice, one little nugget to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? Don't give up on yourself because we won't. Bam. That's it. All right, you guys. That wraps another awesome episode. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. How cool is Betsy? I just love what she brings to this world. How about when she said, pizza's never been mean to me? I mean, it's so funny, but yet I could relate to that on a whole lot of levels, and I'm sure many of you could too. And her point that sometimes the best way forward is to just do the next right thing. It's so relevant and it can help us get out of our own way because sometimes we see the world as so big and the horizon is so far away and our goals are just so epic and massive and maybe out of reach. So knowing that each little next right thing can chip away at our futures is so powerful. It doesn't mean we should not set grand goals, but because we should, but we just don't want to get lost or discouraged before we even start. So on that note, wait, setting grand goals. Don't forget to post your suggestion for Betsy's big five. Oh, what event or thing should she do and tackle? She wants your feedback on her next big, grand, audacious, epic adventure this year, 2018, as she turns 50. You can post it on the Facebook page when we get this episode up, which obviously it's up because you're listening to it. (laughs) All right, before we go run our worlds, don't forget to also visit healthiq.com backslash RTW to see if you qualify for better rates on life insurance because you are someone who works hard to live a healthy life, and I know you do. All right, then you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout, and I'll see you next week.